0: Welcome to the L&D podcast with your host Nick Day of JGA Recruitment, specialist HR recruiters. This podcast is sponsored by Think Learning, specialists in learning and performance technologies. Visit thinklearning.com to find out more.
1: Hello and welcome to the HR L&D podcast. Today I am joined by Selenia Delaney, a keynote speaker, MC, and comedian. Celia started her career at Unilever as Human Resources Manager before embarking on a successful acting career and then going on to establishing her training business, Speaking Success. She's passionate about presentation skills, persuasion, and more recently, comedy. And that's something we're going to be exploring in a lot of detail during the course of this podcast. Celia has the Level 5 Diploma from the CIPD in Learning and Development Management, and she has a Master's in Experimental Psychology from Oxford University. She's a fellow of the Professional Speaking Association and was recently voted best speaker of the year. She's an inspiring public speaker on effective presentation skills, persuasion and confidence and sometimes surprises audience by singing during her speeches. She uses comedy to give her an original take on communication skills, which is why clients turn to her when looking for original after dinner speakers. In her training business, Celia has developed a core set of skills called I Persuade. And that's something in particular we're going to be exploring in a lot more detail during the course of this episode. Through I prepare, I present, and I promote, you can learn the secrets of great writing and delivery, and crucially, how to promote, sell, and influence when speaking to groups or individuals. She's coached more than five thousand people in persuasion across the public and private sectors. So I'm hugely excited to find out how she combines comedy within HR and learning and development. And hear more about when you laugh you learn. So welcome Celia to the HR and LD Podcast. Thank you so much. What a wonderful introduction.
0: <laughs> LD Podcast Discovery. Questions
1: to set the scene. So Celia, to many of our listeners, it may feel like a big jump between being an HR manager to becoming a comedian. So first things first, can you tell us a little bit more about how your career started? Well, there is a 20 year gap between
2: those two things. Uh, I came out of university uh, when I was 21 and I went into HR because I really liked thinking about how people tick. I just love people. I'd already studied psychology and HR seemed like a natural progression to me. But I did know as well that I really wanted to be an actress. I was harboring that dream. I wasn't sure if I'd be able to do it. But in the end, I realized I did want to do it. And I applied to drama school and got in. And so I left a perfectly good... HR corporate career, much to the upset of my family, I'm sure, and uh, ran off to go to drama school. I think also when I was doing HR, though I really liked it and I have a lot of respect for it, I wasn't necessarily good at being serious enough for HR. You know, when I was sacking people, I would just be too fun about it. And I realized I didn't have necessarily the seriousness required. Sure. So I was better off in the arts. <laughs> so that's how it all started. I went to drama school, became an actress. And then I actually gave up acting when I was about 30 and became a trainer and a coach in communication skills. Quite a common route for actors to go into because obviously they feel qualified to tell people how to communicate. And it was still a few more years until I became a comedian. That really emerged after I became a keynote speaker. And then I became an MC for award ceremonies. And when I was doing that, I was becoming more and more funny. And then all of a sudden I was a comedian so really, it's taken me 20 years to come full circle. So now I am an entertainer, but I also work in corporate. And sometimes I do in-house L&D work as well. Uh, but mostly I'm a freelance consultant and I teach people communication skills and I get up on stage and do comedy and it seems to work
1: fine. Good, and it has kind of come full circle. You started in HR and obviously you've got your I Persuade programme, which you're going to find out more about, where you're kind of linking mm. your comedic experience, if you like, with your HR experience and your L&D experience. Mm-hmm. For so many people though, the idea of being comical or being a comedian would be absolutely terrifying. So, <laughs> you know, it's one of those scary things where people ask themselves, are they funny? Obviously you've had to Come to terms with the fact that you are funny because you're obviously are operating in that space now. So, when did you sort of discover that you were funny and you, you had this this, this ability to, to to be a comedian?
2: I was definitely not particularly funny as a child. I would I would really like to point that out to people. I was like Hermione Granger at school. I was a real swat. You now I loved studying and I was quite serious. I think. And then one day I woke up. I was forty and I discovered I was funny. It was like overnight, decided I'm funny. <laughs> okay. And I think what had really happened under the surface was that I'd been making my friends laugh at dinner parties through my thirties and really without realizing it had been practicing the skills of just telling a good anecdote. That's not the same as telling a joke, or having to write jokes, but just learning the timing and the nature of what makes people laugh. I think I had been doing that for a decade. And then I did five minutes of comedy at a conference. I spend most of my time at conferences. There was an opportunity to do a five minute set and I took the opportunity and half of the material was terrible and the other half was good, but I loved, loved the feeling of being back on stage. And I realized I miss this. I've got the bug. I've got to go back to it. This is it. And I walked off the stage after that five minutes and I thought, that is what I'm going to do for a living. Wow. Now, nobody else that evening that took part in that competition had that thought, just me. (laughs)
1: <laughs> well, I've been, um, I don't know if you've been following it on, I think it's on Amazon Prime, The Marvelous Miss Mason. Yes. It sounds like a similar story, you know. She didn't know she was funny until she got on mm. stage and it just kind of consumed her and she loved every mm. minute of it. She made everybody laugh. Mm. And, you know, I'm still going through the story at the moment. But I so enjoying It sounds like a similar yeah. story. Yeah.
2: And I think, you know, you can learn comedy. That's an important thing to point out. You know, I do feel like, I wouldn't say I feel like I'm a natural. I would say that I have studied okay. it now. I've read books on it. I've learned it. I've learned how to do it better. And I continue to learn that. So I don't want anyone to be put off because they don't think they're naturally funny. I think you can learn a lot.
1: But it's something you still like anything, I guess. You need to practice and mm. work at to improve and get better. Mm. And from your perspective, then, why do you think in relation to, I guess, the, the context of this podcast, why do you think that humour is so important in the work?
2: Well, comedy is immensely popular in people's personal lives, isn't it? They tune into Live at the Apollo. That's a primetime show, Um, you know, Michael McIntosh show on a Saturday night. You know, most of the programs that people watch outside of the soaps are funny. And they go in their droves to comedy nights. I can tell you there's a place I go called Angel Comedy where I perform and they have comedy seven nights a week, sometimes three shows a night. And it's full. It's absolutely full of people going to watch comedy. So we know that we seek having a laugh in our own lives. And we also know at work that a good deal of people are very disengaged with their work. They don't enjoy the work they do. They don't feel it has purpose. They feel misunderstood. And I think there's a massive link between those two things. I think that if we can bring humour into the workplace, it's extremely motivating for people. It's engaging. It helps them to bond with each other. And I think they are more likely to bounce into work and say that they enjoy being there if it's somewhere that they can have a laugh.
1: Sure. Well, I think you know, engagement is such a hot topic right now for HR departments or for, for brands generally and how can they engage their employees better. If comedy is a a strategy they can deploy to improve that engagement, then then Mm. why not? So from your perspective then, Celia, how have you included comedy or humour within within learning and development?
2: Well, I think it starts right from the marketing piece. So when you're trying to get learners to take up a new idea, if you want them to do some e-learning or you're asking them to sign up to a workshop or whatever it is that you're offering within the workplace, I think in the marketing, it's a good idea to include some humour. You know, I've done all kinds of things from just little silly videos. You know, I've made fun videos. Uh, I've made fun posters like yep. your country needs you kind of posters or, you know, photoshopping people into pictures and and little cartoon captions where they have a conversation about the learning. So anything that makes it fun or funny that helps them to notice it. And they're just more likely then to turn up and it, it's more likely to stick. You know, they're more likely to consume uh, the workshop or the e-learning as well. Cool. So I think it really starts there. That's really fun, and then also within the instructional design, I think you should integrate humour from the start. So when you're actually designing a workshop or a piece of e-learning, then think about where you could have a bit of fun along the way. Where could people play a game or take a quiz that has some funny answers in it, or you know, how could they spot something that's funny? So a lot of e-learning is built around quizzes. Say you might get a picture. If you're doing, used to training in hospitality, if you're doing training, training people how to work a bar, for example, they'll look at a picture of a bar and they'll have to pick different things out. And one of the funny things you can do is just plant something that's just a bit stupid. It's not meant to be there. You know, it's just more fun like that for people. And they don't know when they're going to get the fun thing and that keeps them on their toes. And also... The e-learning particularly, I think, can be very predictable. And humour is very good at disrupting patterns. You know, that thing of keeping people on their toes is a really good idea because they just, they want to see what's around the next corner and see if there's something funny there. And so they're more likely to keep going for longer sure. in order to get that reward, in a sense.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. I, I picked up on a word that you used a few times um, in explaining that, which is the word fun. Of fun and funny are, are two different words, but I can tell in the way that you are utilizing comedy in your L&D you can be funny through fun they're two different things but obviously your comedy comes through fun play yeah yeah absolutely I think
2: I do think of them as in the same territory because I want people to take the pressure off themselves to be funny I think that's a huge pressure and then it can stop people doing anything at all so I often say to people don't try and be funny just be fun You know, have fun and find the funny and it will come if you relax a little bit more. Just look around you in life and see what's funny and then just repeat that. You don't even have to write a joke. You just have to tell an anecdote or, you know, repeat something that happened the other day. And in itself, these things are funny. You don't have to construct them. It's much more about having your filters set to fun. That's what I often sure, say sure. to people. You know, uh, uh, not, not set to stun, <laughs> as they do in the in his Star Wars. That's what we don't want in learning. We don't want set to stun. We want set to fun. And then that in itself, having that attitude, usually then shows you where the fun could take place because you're out actively looking for it. Right, and
1: of course, you know, as, as well as finding out you're funny at 40. I think I mentioned in my introduction that you've also got some higher level academic expertise in this area in the sense that you've got a Master's in Experimental Mm -hmm. Psychology from Oxford University. Mm. So I wonder if you could tell us a bit more about that Master's that you did at Oxford and also the science behind humour and learning. Sure.
2: I mean, I did this a long time ago. I mean, 25 years ago when I started my degree and actually psychology has moved on a long way since then. I think I'm interested at the moment in the more modern Neuroscience and some of the findings that are coming out of that. And particularly, comedy is about making connections in your mind between two things that you normally wouldn't connect. And we know about the brain that we make new neural pathways when we ask people to think about one thing and think about another thing and put them together in a way that they wouldn't normally. We know that the brain has to connect those physically. And that's a good thing for the brain. It's good for it to build new connections. And that's what we're trying to do when we get people to learn. We're asking them to build new connections. So humor and learning are very linked in the way that the brain treats them. So that's a really good basis for combining the two. There's a good argument for it.
1: Sure.
2: Um, and also there's a limbic system in the brain, which many people will have heard of as well, that releases chemicals when we laugh. So when we find something funny, we've discovered that we release chemicals, endorphins that are pleasurable, things like dopamine that we associate with pleasure and reward. And so when we laugh, we find it rewarding. We want to laugh more. We seek things that make us laugh. And so that's also very good. What you're looking for with learning is to give people a sense of pleasure and reward, Why? Because they'll come back again and do it more. And also we know that they're more likely to retain it, more likely to use it because it was seen as a pleasant thing to do. So that's also a very good argument. And I mentioned earlier as well, social psychology. People tend to bond together when they laugh together. You know, in a comedy club, it's very common that we try to push them all together, put the seats close together and uh, make sure it's nice and warm in the room And we call that like the coals on a barbecue. You're trying to get the coals to light and then spread the warmth around between the people. And that's a much better condition for laughter in a comedy club than if everybody sits separately and the room is quite cold. And then it's very difficult to get them laughing. That's like a piece of psychology applied in that context. You know, I mean, maybe when you get next time and get people into a workshop, get them all to sit on each other's knee. I don't know. <laughs>
1: yeah. well, I've certainly been to a lot of comedy stores. I've never made the association, but uh, yeah, I guess it makes total sense. And certainly, if you're sat miles away from everybody else and you feel more isolated, it's much harder to have that, as you say, that bond with other people. When other people laugh, you tend to laugh more freely. Yeah. I think also you mentioned some of the um the release of dopamine and endorphins and, and other things that we link with reward and pleasure. I guess we've seen in society as well more. I guess, laughing-type businesses pop up as well. I think I saw Mm -hmm. an advertisement the other week for laughing yoga, for example, and I've I've Mm -hmm. heard that if you laugh, even if it's a fake laugh, actually your body can still release the same chemicals if you smile and the same chemicals if you laugh than if it was genuine is that correct or have I got that
2: input? yes yeah that's absolutely right that's, that's the basis of those ideas and we've known that for quite a long time with visualisation so the brain behaves in the same way if you visualise something going well like athletes imagining a race if they go through the race in their mind the, the body thinks the race is happening to some extent you know it won't be sure. quite as high on the readings as if you're actually doing it but the pattern will look the same when you scan the brain so it's very interesting that we can imagine things going well and influence them going well through that positive visualization. And we now know that that's the same with laughter. You know, even if we create laughter artificially, we will get some of the same benefits as if we genuinely belly laugh because something stimulates us to do that. So, yeah, the, all of the science is pointing in the direction of this being a good thing. And yet there still isn't enough of it. I can see that there is sometimes a resistance to it, to putting it in place. And I think that's a real shame. I think people are really missing a trick here.
1: It seems surprising there would be any resistance because everything you've said from both the scientific point of view and actually just the way you're putting it, it seems to me like it makes total sense that like you want to learn in an environment where... You know, you're having fun and you're more likely to be engaged, as you mentioned, if you're you're enjoying it and you find it funny. So you mentioned the word resistance. What kind of resistance do you get then from people about including humour in in, in the learning and development programme? And is it because you think the humour is misunderstood or is it a different Mm. type of resistance that you're coming across?
2: I think there's a couple of things. One is that it's seen as irrelevant or silly or superfluous to requirements. So it's slightly dismissed sometimes. And I think we hear phrases like, let's get down to serious business now. Uh, whereas I think mm. serious business is funny business. I think it is. They can absolutely coexist. You know, you think about the negotiations for Brexit. I bet there haven't been many laughs there. But they really would have benefited from like, if they could have had a laugh together, I'm sure that the negotiations have gone a lot better. You know, really, there's far too much seriousness. You know, there's too much drama around it. Really, there should be a little bit more light touch about it, in my opinion, and noticing the emotional side of things and connecting with the emotional side of things, which is one of the ways we can do that is through laughing together. Um, So I think it can be dismissed by people who think that life is serious, you know, and business is serious. And I think also the second resistance I hear is that people worry that it will go wrong that they'll attempt to put a joke in at the beginning of a workshop or a speech, or they'll put some funny quizzes into e-learning and it will get rejected. You know, people will not laugh or will criticize it even. And the fear of that can stop people from doing it at all. And that's such a shame because then nothing happens, like nothing improves. Whereas I would urge people to say, you've got to take risks in life. All you have to do is test and measure it like anything else. You know, I write a new joke. I don't just put it in a show and take it to the fringe. I go and try out that joke several times on several different audiences and I find out what works. And then when I've honed it, then I put it into a show and I let the critics look at it and critique it like you would if you were sure. putting it into some learning. So you don't do it straight away. Like you go and try it out. And I think. It's understanding almost how to build comedy that people need. You know, they need to understand that there's a process to it. The shame is that they see comedians on Live at the Apollo. They look amazingly polished. The audience is laughing at every single joke. And they think that that comedian was born like that and that they've never experienced any failure. Whereas, of course, that's nonsense. They have done so many hours in terrible clubs in basements Somewhere in the Northeast, you know, and suffered through terrible comedy shows where they've tried stuff out and it hasn't worked, you know, and then they've learned from that and they've changed it. So the trouble is with comedy is people see the finished product and think that's how it should be, but actually there's a lot of work has gone into making it look like that. So I would urge people to think of an idea and just straight away test it out as quickly as you can. And then if it works, keep it in or not.
1: It's funny you were mentioning about, you know, where these you know, comedians sort of apply their trade to get, to get it polished. It was going back years ago now. I used to be on, the, on an editorial board of a, of a publication that went out across the UK, kind of a business publication. And I went to uh, the downstairs basement of uh, Belushi's, which is in uh, near London Bridge, and they get catered for about 12 people in the audience. And I saw Michael McIntyre and he was absolutely brilliant. There was an audience of, say, maybe seven to 12 of us. He was trying out all the materials. He was absolutely hilarious. And obviously, he's gone on to great things. I left that underground sort of basement gig, if you like, <laughs> where no one knew who he was. I went straight to my, uh, my my MD and said, look, I've seen this guy. He's brilliant. We should get him booked for the awards ceremony that, that links to the publication. Uh, but the guy my MD said, I've never heard of him. We can't book someone we don't know. People are going to expect you know, a big name. And actually, they, they rejected my idea and they, they booked Sandy Tosbig um, instead <laughs> because she was a big name at the time. And anyway, lo and behold, that we always plan these awards for 12 months in advance or there, about. Within that 12-month period, Michael McIntyre became like the biggest thing ever. <laughs> and I, remember being, I remember being sat with him in Belushi's right after his gig. He was asking us how the gig went. What did you think of the jokes? And I was with him. I said, look, I thought it was brilliant. I'm going to Give me a card, which he did. And I said, I'll try and get you booked into this awards thing. And of course, he was really up for it. I don't know what we could have got him for. It had been obviously next to nothing in terms of cost. We'd have mm-hmm. booked him in early and we would have had Michael McIntyre at the awards know, It never happened. Oh, but it's no. interesting to link it back. Because he was testing yeah. everything out. And as you say, yeah. everyone else seeing him 12 months later would have seen this polished act on television. But actually, he was plying his trade and testing it in little audiences at you know downstairs bars or pubs like Belushi. You know, it was only from doing that that you get the feedback to realise what works and what doesn't.
2: Yeah, what a great story, though. I um I get to MC quite a lot of awards and I'm not known, you know, I get booked as an MC and I then I can be funny and try stuff out on corporate audiences, usually at least a hundred people, sometimes 500 people in front of me. And that's a great testing ground sure. of being an MC because I'm on on and off stage all the time. I can just try something each time I get on stage and um, and see, you know, and generally I know it's going to go well because I do a lot of in jokes to the companies and they are always an absolute winner. You know, if people are looking for, the secret to comedy, you know, the secret is make it relatable to your audience. Yeah. You know, if you talk about your audience and about things that they love to talk about. So if you're in a company, then it's the in jokes, they love seeing the CEO, you know, ribbed for something or other. Uh, if they have a terrible computer system, then you make jokes about that. Or if you're up in front of a lot of people who are parents, then you make jokes about kids. You know, that is a lot of the secret to it is the relevance. Do your research on your audience and then serve it back up to them, the, the very thing that they want. And I really think that's where Michael McIntyre does so well, he's, he's immensely universal and relatable, as well as just having a lovely style about him. So that's sure. hence his enduring popularity.
1: For those that aren't aware, maybe not be yet, but I'll put a link to your website, Celia, because there are some examples of where you do relate specific jokes to specific audiences on your website. There's a number of videos <laughs> there that people can check out. So if you are interested in booking Celia yeah. for an MC gig, definitely go to the website. And I'll put a yeah, back right. <laughs> Little plug. <laughs> you know, back, back to the episode. So from an L&D perspective, how important do you think humour is for learner engagement specifically?
2: Yeah, so... I think it's vital. I would say that, I know. But I think the reason, one of the reasons for that is that humour really gives learning a human feel. You know, robots can't tell jokes yet, thank goodness. You know, they, they're taking over everything else, but they are rubbish at telling jokes. You know, <laughs> I, I saw a speaker at a conference and he was doing some stuff on Alexa, you know, and he had an Alexa on stage and he said, Alexa, tell us a joke You know, and it was terrible. It was just the delivery of it. You know, they they go, why did the chicken cross the road? You know, like that. it just doesn't come off as human at all. And so however much technology can help us within learning, and it can, it's an incredible thing. I don't think it can bring what a human can bring in terms of wonderful kind of satire, sarcasm, you know, commentary on the world we can do that so that's very engaging for people they do want to relate human to human you can tell if something's had a human touch and so i think that's the very very vital thing when we come to engagement um and secondly you know engaging people you know what i say when you laugh you learn that's what i like to say
1: it's a great say and obviously link that to your i persuade e-learning courses as well haven't you which is obviously something we're really Mm -hmm. keen to find out more about in this episode as well. So can you tell the audience a little bit more about your new i learning course that links that when you laugh you learn you learn concept.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So I decided having been a coach now for over 7 years I work with mostly executives and some of their teams on public speaking and persuasion. Sometimes that's sales as well within persuasion, but a lot of the time people are interested in being an influencer and persuading people to come with them on a journey of some kind. So I love that work. I've been teaching that communication skills body of work for a long enough time that I felt it needed to be written down. And I had a choice. I could have written a book or I felt more suited to me was to get it down on video because I love being in front of the camera. I enjoy it. I feel like I can speak directly to people in a way that's easier than writing for me. So I got into the studio uh, last year and laid down everything that I teach around public speaking and persuasion. Under the label, I Persuade, which is the brand I've been working under for a good few years. So it's really fun. It's intended to help people learn without having to see me because I can't individually coach everybody. And it's quite expensive, I suppose, to work with someone one to one. So This is much more affordable. It gives more scale to it. Also, I can bundle it in with coaching so people can have you know a bit more added value when they work with me. And within there, I do include a video on humour. I'd like to do more on the funny thing about speaking. That's a speech that I do around adding humour to your speeches. I just have one section in I Persuade for it. And the rest of the time, I guess I'm just being a little bit humorous and amusing to carry the message along. But yeah, I'd love to do more in the future. I'm really intending to write more and record more about humour to go along with this series.
1: Great. Where can people access the iPersuade e-learning courses at the moment?
2: Well, it's hosted on a platform called Thinkific, which I really love because it's, for me, it's very easy to use. And we have our own domain called speaking success hyphen tv Okay. But you can just search, you go to Thinkific and search for speaking success. That's my brand. That's my company. I'll put a, yeah.
1: link, on the, I'll put a link in the episode notes as well. So if anyone's interested speedy link just goes to the episode notes of this episode Sure,
2: yeah and also have partnered up with think learning who are sponsoring this podcast they're going to offer those e-learning courses to their clients who are largely in healthcare or many of them are in healthcare so uh, that would be really great to be able to offer it to that market a lot of people there are under a lot of stress but nonetheless need to do persuading and public speaking often on a daily basis so i like that
1: I'm going to ask because I know Sean. I've known Sean Wild for a number of years. A good friend of mine. I know he operate or Think Learning operate very heavily within the healthcare sector, and mm-hmm. Sean does as well. So, what's the link then for you? Have you had experience yourself in working then directly mm-hmm. with the NHS within the healthcare sector? Yeah. Um, I would have thought that sort of adding comedy to the healthcare <sighs> sector might be quite difficult. <laughs> <laughs> oh, they need it. They, they really need
2: it. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I, very, I, sure, sure. <laughs> I've been a keynote speaker for the NHS uh, for the last couple of years. And for some private health care and care at home companies as well. So I've gone okay. in to speak about uh, various topics, but often around persuasion. But I've built some bespoke speeches for the NHS and done some entertainment for them as well. And one of the speeches I did was about stress and stress management, because obviously that's top of their list a lot of the time. And I gave everybody a balloon. There was about 150 people in the room. Gave them all a balloon at the end of the speech and asked them to blow it up And blow all of their stress into this balloon and then to let the balloons go all at once and at the time there was that big hit from the Disney cartoon Frozen you know let it go let it go that one and I sang that while they were letting all of these balloons go and of course balloons are very silly when they let go they all kind of go spinning around the room make loads of noise so it was a very fun way to end the speech and they've mentioned it many times since this legendary moment of uh, letting the balloons go so they enjoyed that very much you know and i and there's some of the funniest people are in in healthcare you know they have to i think you should spend time anyone who spends time around death and dying are some of the funniest people like undertakers have you ever met an undertaker (laughs) they're hilarious (laughs) i think i have well let's hope hope you haven't met one but um but yeah they're very very funny because you know in a way people deal people that deal with darkness need to find more light and so that because that's the contrast for them so they're often actually a really great sure. audience yeah
1: a balloon story sounds brilliant and the fact as you say if it's being retold i guess that's kind of a, a reinforcement of you know, both the engagement mm. and, and whatever story you we're telling anyway yeah. if people are retelling it that's a uh, it kind of gives credence to what, what mm. you're delivering. I love the fact you just burst into song. I think Sean told me that might happen. Um, you you've got a great it. voice, though. It was yeah, well, thanks.
2: So I trained at Mountview, <laughs> darling. I went to you know, acting and musical theatre school. Okay. So, yeah, I'm now just, I make jokes out of show tunes these days. I don't sing them seriously. But, uh, yeah, I'm very, very glad of that
1: background. I, I also did a master's in theatre, but I can't sing like that.
2: <laughs> so, yeah. <it doesn't, laughs> <laughs> Stick to carrying the furniture.
1: Definitely one way style. Before we ask a few questions, find out a little bit more about you, the person, what are the key things that people could do to start thinking about adding humour into their learning?
2: Well, I think I mentioned earlier, find the funny in the everyday. You know, you don't need to write comedy, you just need to write it down. That's really important. And actually carrying a notebook, or these days I put it all in my phone, there's an app called Evernote that I use, although there's lots of notes applications that come with phones. Just write it down. You will forget it. You think you'll remember something that's funny and then you just forget it. You know, it goes by. I I spun an anecdote out of, I found a dog the other day and um, took this dog in and was very excited about potentially owning this dog. And it turned out it was next door's dog. So all I did really was borrow a dog. In fact, what I really did was I stole a dog. (laughs) It turns out. And that was quite embarrassing when they came to get it because I was just trying to hide this dog. So kind of get it I wrote that down, you know that it happened, and also it subsequently meant that I would spun more material out of that as a result. So and but I would just forget that after a few weeks, I'm sure that would go. so that that's the key. get it written down. And then after that, learn how to tell a good story. You know, like me in my thirties, just make people laugh in an informal setting, practice down the pub is what I always say, and see what works. Why do people find particular words funny or particular timing funny? I know that's more about spoken, performed comedy, which I'm interested in, but it does help you with writing it as well. You get a sense of what works and and what people respond to. And, And then the third thing is know your audience. You know, as I was saying, that key into what's relatable and universal. Think about what's topical. If you're ever stuck, look on Twitter and see what's trending that day. There will always be things that are happening that are funny, which, again, you don't have to write jokes about. You just have to repeat them. And there you are. You know, that's free material from social media every single day of your life.
1: (laughs) Fantastic advice. Brilliant. Well, listen, we're going to find out a little bit more about you.
0: Time to find out more about you.
1: So first question, Celia, what is it like to work with you?
0: Uh, well, it's very fun. Obviously,
2: <laughs> I'm very relaxed and <laughs> easygoing as a person. I think I have a rule in my business that my clients need to feel like friends. If they don't pass that test, they're out. Yeah. <laughs> don't I don't like work with them if they don't feel like friends. If they're too stressy, <laughs> they're out. If I'm not interested because right. you know I'm the ruler of my own life now. So. Right that's how it is and um and people sometimes ask me what is it like to work with you and it's difficult to answer so sometimes I say to them it will be like slipping into a warm bath and uh and they go oh that sounds that sounds lovely I don't know what it means <laughs> I say no I don't want, don't know what it means either but sounds good <laughs> so <laughs> and by the time sounds you've good, had a laugh yeah. about that then you feel like friends you know because friends laugh together so that's why it feels good
1: how would your friends describe you then? And how, how would your yeah, how would your friends describe you? I dread to think. <laughs> they would describe me. Yeah.
2: Uh I think what my friends like about me is that I'm Pioneering. I tend to be the first one to do anything. I'm quite brave, you know, I definitely have courage. So, whereas a lot of people think about something or talk about it, I'll probably go ahead and do it. I'm happy to take the risk on everybody else's behalf and report back from the front line. <laughs> uh, and I think that's what it takes to be in comedy, actually. You know, you've got to push yourself forward a little bit and experience life and be willing to have life experiences that perhaps other people might write off as negative, but which you know full well are going to end up on stage as anecdotes sure, you know in, sure. in a couple of weeks time so uh so yeah i i think i'm i'm good fun and i'm i'm pretty courageous i think that that's those are quite good qualities I
1: think you, you need to be both of those don't you if you're going to be successful in comedy you need to have courage that's why most people yeah. don't get up on stage and uh you definitely need to be funny yeah <laughs> professionally or personally what is your proudest achievement to date
2: i think getting into oxford sure uh probably because I felt that was against all the odds. Yeah. So I grew up in Sheffield and uh, went to a state school. We didn't have a sixth form. Uh, Margaret Thatcher closed our sixth form, so I had to go to some dreadful tertiary college, which is now also shut. Uh, and I was very angry with Margaret Thatcher for closing it. I thought you were going to say something else. Then. <laughs> it no longer exists, so uh, I can say what I like about it. But yeah, yeah. it was pretty rough. I, I was I was very annoyed at Margaret Thatcher for closing my sixth form. So I rebelled. Ironically, my rebellion was to go to Oxford because I felt that would be so different from the hand that had been dealt me with going to this terrible A-level college. So it's a funny kind of rebellion. But it did make me laugh that when I went to Oxford, I ended up at Somerville College, which is where Margaret Thatcher studied. And every day I had to walk past a statue of her And every day it made me smile that the very reason that I was there was because she'd (laughs) made me angry, so angry that I'd applied to Oxford. So, (laughs) yeah, it's
1: good. Brilliant. Love it. (laughs) Apart from your sixth form closing, tell us about a time when things haven't gone the way that you wanted.
2: Ah, uh, I'm not sure I should give any secrets away, given that I speak on persuasion. Surely everything I want, I get.
1: <laughs> I think so. <laughs> oh, fair enough, fair enough. We'll close <laughs> out with that. If you could be given any superpower, what would it be? Uh,
2: the ability to be in two places at the same time. That's, that would be wondrous.
1: Okay.
2: I'm very curious about life. I find lots of things interesting and exciting. And can get quite overwhelmed at wanting to do them all at the same time. And I also I deliver all of the work myself now. I don't have other trainers. So I do get offered work and it clashes. So I'm not able to do both things and that drives me mad. So I think just in terms sure. of enjoying life, but also delivering all the work that I'm asked to do, I, if I could be in two places at the same time, that would be amazing. I could lead a double life.
1: Yeah. I know that when we spoke we spoke previously as well, I know that linking it back to HR, the HR side, obviously your background initially was as an HR manager. There was a, a situation, I believe, that occurred as well where you offered two HR management roles at the same time. I think that you wanted to take yeah, both. Yeah, that's right. You know?
2: Very strange that when I first moved to London, I wasn't sure whether I was going to carry on running my business in the way I am now. So I decided to go in-house with L&D for a while and I got two wonderful roles offered. Uh, and one was in a luxury hotel, which is the one I took and, and no regrets there. It was a fantastic place. But the other one was with the police and it was a new spin-off of the police. Wow. And I've always been very drawn to the police, you know, uh, so it was a very difficult dilemma. But they were moving at different speeds uh, in terms of the offers and the hotel got there first. And I felt like I'd said yes to them first. So, in the end, sort of, I did the honorable thing and went with the one that I felt had progressed the quickest. And as I say, how can you know uh, what else would have happened? It's, it's like the film Sliding Doors. I'm always obsessed with that film, you know, the one with Gwyneth Paltrow and yes. John Hanna. So, you know, wh- whatever she does, she ends up with John Hanna. But in one version, she loses nearing, an and the other one, she dies. So, you know, it's important which train you get on.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. What a great position to be in, though. What two great roles to be offered at the same time. And as you say, you've got no No regrets at all, which is fantastic. We're going to dive back into a couple of final L&D questions before we open the L&D Vault. We're going to quickly jump to a quick advert from our sponsors, Think Learning.
0: Engage. Learn, Perform, with Think Learning, specialists in learning and performance technologies. We're experts in solving the challenges of targeting, tracking, training in regulated environments. We have developed the Totara platform to provide a cost-effective, organisation-wide, talent solution that can help you to provide a safer and better place to work. Customisable Workflows promotes engagement through onboarding and induction, whilst an intuitive user interface helps drive ongoing engagement with learning. Bespoke workflows for performance appraisal and integration to payroll and recruitment systems transform Totara into a powerful and holistic talent platform. You'll find us to be responsive, collaborative and solution-focused. Visit thinklearning.com for more information. The LD Podcast. Final questions to help listeners engage, learn, and perform. So
1: we we'll to jump into the final L and D questions. Number one, thinking practically now, Celia. What are some of the key ways that humor can be designed into learning and e-learning?
2: Well, think about that marketing. So, how are you going to draw in people to take up the learning in the first place? What could be fun and funny? Yeah. Instructional design. So Try to start and end with fun or laughter. That's what I always say. Try to get some rapport at the beginning using humor and again, close with a good memory of everybody having fun or laughing together or there being a silly quiz or something at the end. Even just when I'm doing workshops, I do a group selfie and I get them all to cheer. And even just in cheering and then everybody huddling together, they tend to laugh together as well. And that's how the workshop ends, especially when it's doing the luxury hotel and they're working long hours. You know, they really love that. And the third thing is to make sure that you've got fun planted into the learning in places that are surprising. So don't let it get predictable for people. Make them work harder to get the fun. Make them look round the next corner, yeah. as it were, to find out whether there's something fun there. And then you're using fun as a reward as well as a learning
1: tool. Brilliant. Before we enter the L&D vault, it obviously makes sense to ask I guess why L&D professionals listening to this HR and L&D podcast should be encouraged to integrate humour into the workplace. If mm-hmm. you were to summarise it, that's kind of some key, I don't know, four or five bullet points, if you like, as to why people should really take this very seriously. I know we talk about how, you know, adding comedy to L&D, but actually we're being very serious mm-hmm. about, adding comedy at the same time. So I wonder if you could just break that down into a couple of bullet points as to...
2: Well, I think that HR can have a poor reputation in many companies because it's seen as deadly dull and serious and... Uh, you know, the police force of the organization. And that can be a dangerous reputation to have because people don't readily come to HR uh, or they dread going on training or they don't take up the learning because they think it's going to be dull. So it's very important to fight that reputation, I think. And the joy of the L&D side of HR is that you get to be good cop in many ways. You, You get to escape some of the harder uh, harsher bits of of hr you know now that i work in and i don't have to hire and fire anymore uh, i just get to deal with people once they're in the organization so that, sure. it's a, that's a real privilege and so lightening that up is something that i think is very worthwhile bearing in mind and, and the impact that has on reputation the other thing is that you know i think D yeah. needs to work hard to make itself indispensable to the workforce One could argue that people can learn by themselves now. They've got the internet, you know, they can go on some big journey online and learn for themselves and we we can learn almost anything from YouTube. So what is L&D bringing to the table? And again, it's that human quality that L&D can bring that they can add and to gain good relationships with learners, you know, using humor. So that's a bit about not letting the robots win, I suppose, you know, still having some kind of thing to offer. You know, it's great that in l people want to provide top quality content, of course. But I think what the new generation of people look for now is an experience. We hear this talked about a lot at conferences. People want experiences uh, because there is now too much information in the world. We've got loads of information on the internet and what we're looking for is an experience and who wouldn't want that experience to be fun that's my question
1: (laughs) yeah well it's a great way of putting it and you're absolutely right on the experience thing as you say we're kind of so much news out there it's hard to digest it all and people are always looking for new creative ways of uh, of being engagement so if Mm. we can make that be engaging if we can make that experience fun why not love it brilliant but we're going to open the D vault
0: opening the L and D vault
1: What is one piece of advice you would give to someone working in learning and development right now
0: Let the
2: learners get involved
1: Okay
2: I teach this in public speaking when people get up to do a speech they almost always make the mistake of thinking that a speech is a monologue that it is just them speaking to the audience and the audience has to sit there and be quiet and take it in And I always say nobody said there was a rule Uh, that said it had to be a monologue it can be a dialogue it can be a conversation and in fact the best types of speeches if you want to watch things like ted talks one of the overt objectives of those is that they seem conversational that's what ted will ask you to do and i think that it is two way yeah and i think that's about learning creation as well you know get your learners involved in creating the learning in the first place and then keep them involved all the way along So that's the way that L&D is going now. It's not going to be a case of designing training and pushing it out to people. It's a conversation.
1: Great. Fantastic. So with the benefit of hindsight, what would be the one career decision you would change?
2: I would nip back and take the other train in the sliding doors analogy and do that job for the police. (laughs) as well I'd want to do that
1: as well <laughs> great great that was easy fantastic yeah <laughs> so when you look at the L&D profession and from an eagles viewpoint if you like what do you think is currently holding the industry back
2: uh, well I on one hand I don't think it's for me to say you know I'm an external these days I'm a, a consultant so it's that's tricky because I don't feel like I'm an in-house L&D anymore okay. But if I was going to guess when I meet people at conferences, it might be to not overcomplicate things. Learners are, as we've discussed, very self-directing these days, uh, very bright. We're not living in times where people can't read or write, so we don't have to spell things out to them. They're phenomenal at finding information for themselves. So I think that L&D is struggling with its identity at the moment, trying to find a place within that. And I think it's about having an ease in allowing learners to get on with it, You know, do what they want to do. And trying to find your role within that, sure. how can you partner with learners? How can you encourage and support them? Uh, make the learning into an experience for them. As I was saying, yeah. you know, how can you justify your role there uh, with a generation of people who are really very bright, very capable already? Uh, so yeah, I would I would say think about what value you can add, and I'm, I'm sure there is plenty of value still to be added.
1: Fantastic. Brilliant. So if we're sitting here a year from now celebrating what a great year it's been for you, Celia, what would you have hoped to have achieved?
2: I am very excited about where my comedy's going at the moment. I'm writing a new show called Angelic is the working title. OK. And I'm hoping to perform that in the Fringe, the Camden Fringe in August in London in a venue called the Bill Murray Pub which is part of angel comedy and where a lot of really good names go and do their work in progress shows. So about a week ago, they had Eddie Izzard there who I think is an absolute legend. Wow. So it's a really great stomping ground for new and established acts to go and um, inflict their (laughs) material on the unsuspecting public. So I'll be doing that in August, uh, which I'm really excited about. And in terms of the other business things I do, I hope I'll have coached some more great, inspiring executives and worked on incredible speeches. I had the great privilege to work on a speech on Grenfell last year uh, that was going out to the construction industry. It was by a woman and uh, she's quite senior in construction and she's my absolute heroine because she just did an an amazing job with it and it was lovely to get to speech right with her. And to you know, give my ideas as to how something so difficult could be communicated well. So that was a really, really great moment. And well, I, I hope I'll have been on stage all year, uh, being funny every week, whether that's as an MC or as a comedian. Uh, that's what I'll look <laughs> back on and hope for. And I will own a dog. That's also a big ambition. I've never had a dog. And we're currently applying to get a rescue dog. Oh, lovely. And I'm super excited because I'll be a brand new dog owner. I've never owned a dog. So by the end of this year, total success for me would be new comedy show, lots of interesting speeches and a little fluffy canine friend. Fantastic. Of
1: course, you have owned your next door neighbor's <laughs> dog for a moment. So I guess you've experienced it. Yeah, so.
2: that, that's really what triggered it all off. <laughs> I'd, once I'd I've half got- stolen a dog.
1: I am going to ask one last question in the vault, just for those uh-huh. that are listening out there. So if, if I was sort of quite new to the L&D market at the moment, what, what's, the, what's the one piece of advice you would give to someone who was new to a career in learning and development?
2: Well, it's so rewarding. I wouldn't hesitate to go into it. I have no regrets after doing it for the last 20 years or so. Uh, but I would try out being in large and small companies because that gives you quite different types of experience. It's very different being in a, a corporate like Unilever and then being in a small company with only 250 people like the luxury hotel that I was working in a few years ago. And consider being freelance as well, as long as you're willing to be good at sales, because ultimately you do have to market and sell yourself all of the time if you want to do freelance work. Uh, But wherever you work, doesn't matter where you go, have a sense of (laughs) humour.
1: Fantastic. That's a brilliant way to finish the podcast. And as you say, if you laugh, you learn. So um, or when you laugh, you learn, I should say. So a mm-hmm. brilliant way to finish. But listen, I want to say a huge thank you, Celia, for for joining me today on the HR okay. L&D podcast. Mm-hmm. I will, of course, put links to your website, which is celiadelaney.co.uk. You can see a number of her video-based learnings and examples of some of the speeches she's given, often the speeches and them seeing things like that, on her website as well. So please do go there. Of course, if you want to find out more about the I Persuade course, and if you want to see Celia's video-based learning on public speaking and persuasion, please go to speakingsuccess-tv.thinkethic.com. I'm afraid that's all we've got time for today on the HR podcast, but I hope you've enjoyed this fantastic episode full of lots of laughs. Remember, you learn when you laugh. So keep laughing, enjoy the podcast, and I'll tune in with you all again in a couple of weeks. Thanks a lot.
0: You've been listening to the l podcast with your host, Nick Day of JGA Recruitment, specialist HR recruiters. This podcast has been sponsored by Think Learning. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please review it, share it and subscribe so you never miss a future episode.